Loving God, as we open ourselves to the reading, the hearing, and the incorporating of your holy and living word, I pray that you would fall afresh on us through the power of the Holy Spirit so that in our hearing, you might invite it to to shape us for you and for your will. And God, in these moments, as I seek to offer a word to accompany them, I pray that you would speak through me, and if need be, in spite of me, so that your word alone would be heard. Amen. So I just want to start by saying I'm particularly excited to preach twice this week. And I don't mean tonight. I don't worry about that. A couple of you, I saw you look at your watches. I'm not even going to comment on that at all, of course. But, but really because Pentecost is one of my favorite Sundays. And, and I mean that sincerely. If I had to rank, well, I'm not going to go into that either. But the point is I love Pentecost. Um, and even though Pentecost is still a few days off, this is sort of, this is the week of Pentecost and we're building towards it. And as I began to think about what I might preach tonight, um, with the classic text of Pentecost being Acts 2, which I'll be preaching on Sunday, um, one of the thoughts I had was this passage from Genesis. But I wasn't really sure what to do with it. And then it hit me. I decided I wanted to make tonight be our Pentecost Advent. Now stay with me here. Advent as a name, as a season, you might recognize. Advent is the the four weeks that we celebrate in the church before Christmas. Uh, It's a time of of preparation for that beautiful experience of the uh, of of Jesus coming as a baby. And 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 we, we take time to do that because it's worth preparing for it so that we can experience it fully and new even as we come to it every year. But really Advent, lowercase a Advent, is is really just a word that, that derives from the Latin adventus, which means coming. And so you, you can get sort of the, the meaning, the reason we use that word that Christmas is coming or or Jesus is coming. I mean, it's also a translation of the Koine Greek word that we see in Scripture, parousia. And that word just means the the presence of God while also longing for the coming of God, which, again, is such a beautiful sort of idea that we acknowledge the presence of God with us while also, as people of faith, are longing for the coming of God when Jesus comes again. And about these things, I want to say first, I promise there will be no more Latin or Greek. I know that's not everybody's favorite. But second, I really believe that these words and this idea of of coming and preparation connect so well with Pentecost. Pentecost is, by the way, well... (laughs) I did promise no more, but Pentecost just means 50th, so there's, no, there's not a lot. It's like the 50th day after, um, the, uh, after Easter, but it's the celebration of that moment when the Holy Spirit, the advocate that Jesus promised, falls on the disciples, when the Holy Spirit was given to the world as a gift and made God available and present with us in new ways. And so what I'm thinking about in this moment, in this time of worship together, much like Advent as a season before Christmas, maybe we can celebrate and yet think of it as a time of preparation for 
Pentecost as it comes on Sunday. And by that, I don't mean it's like a wardrobe reminder, although if you want one, it's traditional to wear red. That might be fun. You could come on Sunday and wear red. But, but, But to prepare our hearts and minds for a unique and new experience to, to prepare ourselves for that message and that power and that privilege that we have to be those that the Holy Spirit chooses to be present with, that chooses to continue to bless and challenge and empower and send us. So hear these words. This is from Genesis, the 11th chapter, and I'll begin at the first verse. Now the whole earth had one language in the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortar, mort, mortars, no, mortals had built. And the Lord said, look, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Now, if you're like me, the first challenge of this passage might be to ask, why? (laughs) What was so wrong with that? I mean, even here, when God first sees what the people are doing, what they are achieving, the description is, look, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. And if you take that and you just slap it on a wall somewhere without any context or anything else, it it doesn't really sound bad, does it? I mean, you want to be like, hey, good job. That's awesome. Keep going. With a singular language, this, this singular culture, singular purpose, they begin to, to make their bricks so that they can build this city and this tower, really a fortress, to avoid their greatest fear. As the people themselves say, it is to be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Now, I want to say, first of all, I don't read this as sinful, in, in the sense that the making of the bricks... The idea that they had one language or, or even had aspirations, that that is maybe not inherently sinful. In fact, I want to say clearly that I don't believe the message of this passage is that God is punishing some kind of achievement or even their audacity. And really, I, I don't believe we need or should see the, the confusion of languages and their scattering as a form of punishment at all. However, however, this, this city and its, its emphasis on individuality, the, the emphasis on the idea of one language, one culture, one city, was perhaps an intentional move away 
from the beauty of God's creation. The, the, the risk, if you will, was not their achievement, but in a sense, the lack of it. I believe that perhaps what God is, is seeing here for them is a sad future where nothing new or different or challenging from outside themselves would be experienced as the walls, the tower, would, would keep it all out. In many ways, I understand the goals of Babel to be some kind of strict individualism, and, and I also believe that this is a message that we need to hear today. And yes, I know, I know, the, the world is, is flat, and actually, it's not literally flat. I know it's not literally flat. Don't quote me on that. That's another, speaking of context, right? And this is, our pastor said, but no, 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 no. But the concept of a flat earth, like in uh, Friedman's book, The World is Flat, some of you have read it. It's a really interesting book. But what he writes about is this sort of rapid connection of a globalized world in the 20th century that connects us all in, in incredible ways. From, from foreign events that we can witness today as someone on the other side of the world is streaming it on their phone live. To, to supply chain for services and manufacturing that is produced on every corner of the earth and brought here or brought from here to there. I mean, we are more connected today than we've ever been across the planet. And I, I, I think there are really wonderful things about that. I think there are also challenges that come with that, successes and failures connected with that shift and so you might wonder, why in the world do we need to talk about individualism today? Isn't that a thing of the past? Isn't that gone? And I certainly also don't want you to hear me saying that individualism itself is inherently a bad thing. But really, I mean, come on, Ben. There are no walls or towers that we could possibly build that would keep out others when it seems everybody is just a text or a tweet or a call away, right? Maybe, but it sure doesn't seem to stop us from trying, <laughs> I believe Babel is very much alive today. Often it, in response to these very connections, the very flat earth, globalization, whatever you want to call it, the revealing information, the diversity that we experience in all of those connections. Babel looks very different today, but I, I think it's still very real, still risky. I want to suggest that Babel might be an, an individualism that becomes an idol. An individualism that looks like practicing it behind walls and borders and organizations that profess themselves the, the gold standard of fill-in-the-blank, whatever they are, while insisting that any idea that differs from what they believe, what they espouse, would make them lesser. It's a, it's a babble, an idol that moves some folks from a healthy patriotism to a nationalism that excludes other nations and their interests that build walls to exclude and punish others because they were born somewhere else. Babel can affect religions and, and even Christian denominations. It screams that unity must be sought and achieved by the exclusion of those who disagree. It creates terms of enlistment or levels of engagement based on things that have no effect on passion or commitment or faith. And, and I call it the idolatry of individualism because our practice, our celebration of Babel, conscious or otherwise, it becomes something we're proud of, that we seek. And again, nothing wrong with it to a point, but, but when it becomes an idol, or, or to put it another way, when it begins to speak to us with the power of a God, 
when it begins to affect what we will hear from the God that actually is, then I worry that we might be crossing a line that God might want to come down again and say, ooh, let's spread them out again. Because that's a, that's a rigid, separating individualism that seeks to maintain comfort and structure through a, a kind of unity that actually denies the beauty of the diversity of God's creation. That's what Babel is. And that's what God did, or that's why God did what God did, I think, to help these people from avoiding that kind of rigid individualism. Because Babel is, I mean, that kind of unity, that kind of blocking out the opinions and experiences and stories of others, that's what causes injustice. That's what, that's what makes a distinction between rich and poor become something that we create policy around that, that makes that happen even wider. Babel is what makes people think they can own other people. Babel is what makes people think they can condemn other people. Babel is what makes other people enemies. That's what makes war happen. Babel is what comes when we look to ourselves and see the beauty only in ourselves in whatever form of Babel we might uh, subscribe to and begin to look to ourselves instead of God for answers. The, the confusion of the scattering of the diversity that God causes there, I think God did that to set them free. And, and I believe the reason I think about this in the context of, a, of an advent for Pentecost is because that's why Pentecost offers something so much more and something so unique in comparison to the spirit of Babel, that, that, that it comes to offer us more than simple unity, comfortable unity. When the Holy Spirit falls on them on that first Pentecost, the author of Acts, Luke, is, is saying very clearly and very carefully that it falls on everyone of all nations and languages. The Holy Spirit falls in everyone, the intellectual and the unsophisticated, the committed and the apathetic, every orientation, skin color, gender, and for a moment, just for a moment, they all speak the same language. And it was beautiful. And it didn't last. <laughs> the, the, the very first days of that early church, they found themselves walking over those barriers of their culture and their nationalities. And, and, then, and then as Acts continues, I think it doesn't even wait until chapter 5. I think it's in 3 and 4. All of a sudden, you know what we have? Infighting in the church. Debates over whether or not someone has to adhere to this particular uh, Jewish belief before they can do this, or do they have to do this before they can, or do they have to give it this way, or well, how much of their money do they have to give into the common pot? And all of a sudden, yeah, it didn't last. Because while we are children of Pentecost, I think what we need to be reminded of, we're also children of Babel. We long for the idea of Pentecost, and we do live into it at times, and praise God for that. But I think we also long for the comfort and predictability of Babel, of comfortable unity. And so in this time of worship, as we find ourselves in a room, in a space, in a time surrounded by people of different ages and races and genders and orientations and different levels of education, different life experiences, different dreams. As we look around, do we want to respond by building walls, by, by, by saying that's enough? <laughs> 
Or do we want to turn to the Holy Spirit and pray for a Pentecost that looks more like that first one, to find ways to speak to one another, to listen to one another, and to live into God's great Pentecost gift of God's diverse creation. Amen.